0: Now that Missouri legislators have returned from spring break, they're getting into the issues that could provoke the most debate and controversy. And one of the people at the center of all of this is Senate President Pro Tem Dave Schatz. The Republican from Sullivan joins us on the latest episode of Politically Speaking to talk about the big issues for the rest of the legislative session and why there will almost certainly be extra time this year to deal with congressional redistricting. Let's hit the music.
1: Music This is the Politically Speaking podcast,
2: the definitive show about Missouri politics.
1: We have to talk about things that matter to people.
0: I've tried to bring that same aggressive iconoclast style with me to uh, the
1: United States Senate. I think my district is a model for the state. We put Missourians first.
2: You just kind of have to find the common ground with people.
1: I believe that this district deserves someone who
2: represents their values.
0: After I came back to St. Louis, I started thinking that I could have
1: a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make.
0: And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio Political Correspondent Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me today is my co-host, St. Louis Public Radio State House reporter.
2: Jacqueline Driscoll.
0: And our very special guest today, uh the he is the Pro Tem of the Missouri Senate, a Republican from Franklin County. Our guest today is.
1: Senator Dave Schatz.
0: Senator, thank you for coming back on the podcast. We have a l- literal ton of issues to talk about, uh, to use the cliche. But I want to start off with an open-ended question. Um, What are some of the things that you're expecting the Senate to deal with as the legislature hits the second half of the 2021 session?
1: Well, first and foremost, Jason, uh, obviously the the House has just uh, sent the budget to the Missouri Senate. Um, The the one uh, constitutional obligation that we have, uh, in the legislature is passing a balanced budget. Uh, so that, that is going to be, obviously in the next few weeks is going to take up uh, quite a bit of the focus. Uh, there are several other things that obviously have been in the mill and, and are continuing to work through the process, but that, that will begin to form and shape and take quite a bit of uh, our focus going forward from this point. Um, I would also say that obviously uh, I have a, a very, you know a, a very big interest in transportation. Uh, and again, the, the fuel tax is something uh, that is on the other side of the building. Uh, I'm going to be uh, working uh, with House leadership and members over there to try to see if we can get that thing across the finish line, um, you know, into the governor's desk is, uh, is a big priority of mine. And I'm hopeful that, that this year we finally address something that we haven't addressed for 25 years. And the election integrity um, is something I think that we will continue to deal with this year. I think that's probably in the next few weeks. Uh, initiative petition reform, uh, making sure that uh, out-of-state interest, special interest groups that, uh, that have in the past seemed like they've had tremendous amount of power when it comes to changing our state constitution with clever ballot language. Uh, they sneak uh, what we would consider to be some constitutional changes on the ballot, and sometimes in voter turnout is very low. Uh, obviously, we have sent the Wayfair um, legislation to the House as well. I think that's something that we're very uh, hopeful that we can finally get that off the table. Uh, and one of the things that they've been ba- back and forth between both chambers is the conversation about education reform. Uh, the, the the main uh, idea there is to make sure that every Missouri child has access to a quality education. Uh, and some of the system, clearly the system isn't working for all students, and so we need to make sure that uh, every Missouri uh, student or every Missouri citizen has an opportunity to get that quality education. And so. I I think that some of the things that we've already passed uh, and continue to talk about police reforms, the police bill of rights, COVID liability, uh, and then continue to roll back, you know, restrictive regulation so that Missourians can uh, continue to reopen um, their businesses uh, and get back to school and get the economy back going is probably going to be some of the priorities and hopefully that we'll get those things accomplished before the end of session. I would
2: love to hop to the budget because obviously as we're taping this on Friday, uh, April second, the House just passed uh, their version, its version of the budget bills yesterday on Thursday. Obviously, there were some good things in in uh, the budget bills that were sent over, but they were things like uh, a raise for state workers, fully funding education. But that was overshadowed by the decision of uh, Republicans in the chamber not to fund Medicaid expansion. Um, we're hearing from House Democrats that they are hopeful that the Senate will be able to work that back into the budget bills. What's the fate of funding for Medicaid expansion that you can tell so far?
1: Well, again, I think, uh, you know, obviously now receiving it back over. I mean, obviously that would have been something that typically would have been in House Bill 11 and obviously it was not in there. Uh, I think there was, again, I don't know if it was House Bill 20 or, or where they tried to attempt to fund Medicaid uh, expansion for obviously it failed. Uh, But I think that the conversation there, I really probably wouldn't be able to tell you. I think there are folks that that probably, you know, on um, the other side of the aisle, obviously they want to make sure that Medicaid expansion is funded. uh, But I myself personally, uh, you know, was not a a advocate or supporter for the Medicaid expansion, you know, for the reasons I believe that uh, we have concerns. Uh, There was no funding mechanism Uh, you know, when this initiative petition was passed. uh, And I believe if there had been a funding mechanism associated with it, it may not have passed because uh, voters and people weren't told where it was going to be paid for and how it was going to be accomplished. And so whether or not, you know, the amount of uh, dollars, obviously there is a, you know, claim that the feds, you know, portion, they're paying a a large portion of the, the Medicaid program, but into the future, we know that that uh, is a possibility that that's going to be on the burdens of Missouri taxpayers. And so we have these concerns as to how much that's going to impact our state budget. And at the end of the day, I believe it will be something that will cost uh, you know us at, from the education uh, line uh, in order to fund that program. And so obviously, um, that's where the conversation is going to be and whether or not we actually fund that. And I think that at some point, it may be a decision the courts weigh into if the Senate chooses not to fund it. Uh, then the courts will probably weigh in at some point in time as to whether or not uh, it's a requirement of the state. I believe we have constitutional grounds to say uh, without a funding mechanism, uh, you know, the legislature are the appropriators. Uh, and we make the decisions, uh, and therefore uh, we choose to fund programs that uh, that we appropriate money for.
2: So another person uh, from your party, the leader of your party, Governor Mike Parson, who was also a pretty staunch opponent of Medicaid expansion as it was being discussed, as we recognized that that it was going to hit the ballot, Um, but Yesterday, again on Thursday, he did come out and say, as he has, that this was the will of the voters, and it's something that he appropriated for in his budget proposals, and it's something that the legislature needs to do. Um, Jason, do you have a clip to play?
0: Yes, I do.
1: Yeah, we're going to see where that process goes. I mean, the House, uh, you know, we put it in our budget, in the the governor's budget. You know, we planned on funding that, so the House took the action they did. We'll see what the Senate does, and we'll see what the end of that uh, shows. But I think we're a long way from getting that to the finish line.
2: So, obviously, the power of the purse lies within the hands of the legislature for a reason, Um, and the executive branch can make their recommendations. But, again, it falls on the House and the Senate to uh, appropriate state dollars where they feel that it needs to go. But hearing from the governor on this, I I mean, will that have any impact as it moves through the Senate? Because again, it does sound like um, he is expecting the Senate to do something with Medicaid expansion based on on, uh, that interview that he had yesterday.
1: Well, I'm not sure that I read into the governor's comments that, uh, again, I think that what he alluded to, and uh, if I heard it again, I could probably be more Specific, but he said obviously he'll, we'll have to wait and see where the, where the Senate goes with this. Obviously, you know, the legislature does, um, you know, have the power of the person over the appropriation process. I know it's in part of the governor's recommendation. Uh, the governor feels like, obviously, that voters voted for this thing, and I think that they did, but I believe Medicaid expansion uh, probably passed in about seven counties of the state, uh, if, I, if I'm correct on that. But I also realize this the one thing that, that, that I believe we have constitutional grounds to stand on is that, that there was no funding mechanism in there. I, I can't read you verbatim from the Constitution, but obviously voters cannot, uh, you know, we cannot without a, you know, there are certain things that you can vote that has funding mechanisms associated with them. Uh, but I think this is bad uh, policy of going down a path when people put something on the ballot and just say, you know, it's up to the legislature to figure it out at that point in time. Uh, and that's why I believe that you're getting pushback uh, from the House and probably from the Senate on this particular issue, is there was no funding mechanism. And I think when you're up front with people and you tell voters what, what the reality is, is say, okay, if, if they would have said, we're going to create a new tax or a new process, or we're going to take it from education, budget or where it's going to come from, but here's how we're going to pay for it. It's a good program, but they got to find a funding mechanism. So I believe, again, that conversation will continue on in the Missouri Senate. I can't predict whether or not what we come out of there with, but I'd say it would be likely that we're probably going to push back on this issue uh, and that's why I think when we talk about uh, IP reform, I think it's very critical for that we have a conversation about that as we go fur- further into, um, you know, down the road.
0: Now, before we move on to another topic, because I really do want to move on to something else, if Missouri expands Medicaid under the American Rescue Plan, the state would get well over a billion dollars. And I don't know what that money, like the specifics of where that money could be used for. But it stands to reason that you could, in some ways, bank that money and then pay the state match of Medicaid expansion for 10 to 15 years while you figure out a a permanent funding mechanism. So how does that contradict your claims that there's no funding mechanism to actually implement Medicaid expansion?
1: Well, again, uh, I I think that the federal matching money uh, that you may be talking about obviously has there are certain um uh, requirements uh that, that that those funds can be used for, but we you know the reality is uh, Jason that that our Medicaid program as it is right now is growing faster than our state's budget, uh, and so just making you know that is and whether or not we can uh, you know can have some reforms and and, and gain control of, of that growth, um, but expanding the population, uh, only creates the problem and makes it larger going into the future. And so since I've been in the legislature, this is my 11th year, uh, we have seen our Medicaid program continue to eat up the growth of our state's budget uh, year after year after year. And so I think that is a great concern. And so some of this money, uh, you know, obviously the, it is going to have strings attached to it. It's going to have certain requirements. And I think we will investigate, you know, all of our options when it comes to that fed, those federal dollars and what we can utilize them for.
0: I, I do want to continue on the topic of the American Rescue Plan, because regardless of what this, the legislature does on Medicaid, uh, the state is going to be getting, mm-hmm. I, and I at last estimates, $2.8 billion from the federal government. And I'm interested to hear if there's been any conversation among Republicans about what they're going to do with that money. Again, I don't know what, quote unquote, strings are attached to it. I, I imagine you can't just do whatever you want with it. But I, I've gotten the sense that there is some open endedness to what you can do with that money. And I'm interested to hear what Republicans that control the legislature have in mind there.
1: Well, I think, uh, you know, a- a- again, the one thing we won't receive from the federal government probably until sometime, you know, in May is the guidance on the stimulus funds and how they can be spent. I mean, that is the same day as our budget deadline uh, is uh, this year, Uh, and it will have very little impact uh, on this year's session and or budget. I think it will be something that those funds will not arrive all at one time, Uh, so it's possible we could begin discussing during a special session when we come back. Obviously, we're going to be uh, doing that for redistricting, but uh, uh, there's a better chance than not that most funding discussions will take place next session. So uh, again it, a lot of it is is where these uh, buckets of money can be used obviously i have uh, you know there is another uh, uh, you know stimulus uh, that is being proposed by the federal government you know whether on infrastructure a lot of things are open ended and unknown right now as to where those funds can be utilized and needed again i'm a i'm a big advocate for infrastructure and so you know, i would like to see us put some money towards some of the needs that, you know, the ongoing needs that we have and have been building up over time because of our lack of being able to uh, meet the needs of our transportation system. So, uh, but but Jason, I, I guess until we actually see, you know, where we can spend that money and how we're going to do it and when it's going to be a- available is going to de- really determine the conversation where it goes.
2: I know that there is some talk at the federal level about President Joe Biden's infrastructure plan to repair some roads and bridges, um, but Missouri took its own action, or the Senate did rather, uh, to repair some roads and bridges by utilizing funds um, in a gas tax. Uh, Senator Schatz, I know that this is something in my time, I know that this is something that you have been an advocate for and it finally made it through the Senate. Um, First off, have you heard about perspectives uh, moving in the House at all? And also, again, I would just like to, to give you the opportunity for our listeners to talk a little bit about this gas tax. I know that Missourians don't have much of an appetite for taxes in general, but why you feel that this is an important one to get done for the state?
1: Well, let me first, uh, first off say, you know, the problem that we face has been the same problem that's been since, since my time entering the legislature some 11 years ago, that we, we have had a funding shortfall uh, to maintain our, our, our infrastructure system here in the state of Missouri. Uh, The one of the most important things that we do and government can do is to provide the infrastructure necessary to make sure that we can attract business, industry, our citizens. Uh, Citizens don't build roads. Uh, And so that is one function that's a responsibility, I believe, of the government to do is to provide the infrastructure necessary. We have the seventh uh, largest system in the United States and we fund it 49th. It's as a business person, it's pretty easy for me to see we've got a problem there and we are currently unfunding our needs to the tune of about $800 million annually. We've probably amassed somewhere in the neighborhood of $10 billion of unfunded needs in our transportation system. And obviously, uh, you you can't continue down the path we are. And that's why when we I've proposed before other mechanisms to try to fund transportation through a proposal a few years ago that was a sales tax proposal that the voters rejected, uh, Prop D. Uh, was an opportunity for voters to be able to do that. And, and the one thing I learned from Prop D, obviously, ballot language is very critical in, in explaining to voters exactly. And a lot of what we heard on Prop D is they were confused. They weren't sure. It had Olympic medals associated with it, Highway Patrol. Uh, but what we did see is there was about 1.1 million people supported the idea of transportation funding. A little over $1.2 million rejected it. Therefore, the the question is, what do we do now? And and so the proposal that we came up with is the South Carolina model uh, that allows, what they have done is that allows for an increase in the motor fuel tax done through the legislature that is refundable uh, to the citizens uh, that choose to to apply for a rebate. uh, And therefore you can meet the needs of, of both worlds. Those who believe in investing in transportation can, those who do want to uh, get a refund can also do that. And so I think we've kind of come up with an idea that obviously we didn't coin the the idea South Carolina did, and it's been very successful for them. Uh, But it will address the need uh, that we have not addressed in 25 years. And the amount of revenue that that we need, obviously uh, some of the federal money that could could come in could probably help us catch up to some of those, that list of uh, ongoing list of things that need to be addressed. But just for maintaining in the future, Uh, we we've got to increase uh, through inflation. We have lost our buying power. And so the motor fuel tax is the mechanism right now that we've been funding transportation for over a hundred years. And I think it's the right thing to do. It's a responsible thing to do. The users pay for it, but obviously it gives allows people that feel that, uh, that we shouldn't be able to do it, have an opportunity to get a rebate. And so I'm pretty excited that we can get this done. I know it's not a popular issue uh, with some of our more conservative, Uh, members, but it's the best of both worlds as far as I'm concerned.
0: How much would the gas tax go up if this ends up passing?
1: We have proposed uh, two and a half cents a year for five years. Uh, So it would be a total of 12 and a half cents. Uh, And so that would produce about $500 uh, million once it's fully implemented uh, in uh, new uh, uh, revenue. Uh, But again, we know that if there is a rebate portion to that, uh, it would probably, you know, what South Carolina has seen is they've got about a 15% uh, redemption. We believe ours would probably be a little bit higher than that. You know, it could be as high as 20, 25% redemption rate, depending on, uh, you know, how people dec- decide to do that. Uh, and so, again, we may net about 10 cents, uh, but that would go a long way. It doesn't get us to the 800 million shortfall that we're currently at. But it's a lot further down the road uh, than we are right now, and again, we've we've ignored this problem for many many years. And so, uh, and I do know that the infrastructure uh, proposal that we've seen from from the Biden administration uh, is a little disappointing to me because out of the two uh, trillion dollars that they're talking about spending, less than six percent of that is uh, <clears throat> has been uh, dedicated for roads and bridges, about one hundred and fifteen billion dollars, uh, and so forty three percent. Of the of that is spent uh, on, or 43% of the that is is spent on mass transit, transit. Uh, and so there's 165 billion dollars more than roads and bridges, and so on mass transit. So I again, uh, I I was I was driving in uh, to uh, my office here and coming down the interstate today. The condition of our uh, of our roads and bridges obviously is very critical for us to be able to continue to attract uh, business and industry in this state because we have you know, the geographic advantage that most states don't. We live in the center of the United States and we are the hub and should be the hub of commerce, um, you know, for the United States.
2: Do you, have you had any indication what the House will do? I, I haven't spoken to Speaker Rob Viscovo about this, but I do remember one of my questions for Speaker Elijah Haar was about the gas tax, and he basically shut it down before you know I even had the chance to ask many questions. It just wasn't something that he said that the, the caucus had an appetite for. Do you have any indication as to what the uh, Republicans in the House may do with this?
1: Well, if there's any indication, uh, if, if the Senate is any indication of, of where that where we believe the House will potentially end up, um, you know, I, I believe that there is an appetite there. It'll be it'll be a bipartisan effort in order to do it. Uh, you know, the House passed the measure uh, out, of the, out of the Senate chamber 2113. Uh, I think that we'll probably see, you know, in some shape, form or fashion that, uh, you know, that will be somewhere similar what we can get accomplished there. I will be working very diligently uh, along with the coalition of people that support this uh, in order to make sure that we can get this thing across the finish line. But it is something, obviously, uh, you know, Speaker Viscovo is not, uh, not a, not a strong champion for, uh, I think he's missing a great opportunity, uh, you know, in order to address one of the most uh, problem issues that we've been facing the state for a long time. But I do think that uh, we will negotiate uh, and work out to where that thing gets an opportunity to get to the floor, to get an honest discussion on it and get a vote on that thing. And I believe we'll prevail. Uh, And I'm very optimistic about that. And when it gets to the governor's office, I'm certain he will sign it into law.
0: We'll be right back after this quick break with Senate President Pro Tem Dave Schatz. And we're back on Politically Speaking with Senate President Pro Tem Dave Schatz. He is a Republican from Sullivan. I want to touch on the election related issues that you alluded to before. Some of the things that I've heard beyond, you know, raising the threshold to pass constitutional amendments from like a simple majority to a supermajority, are trying to get more signatures. Um, There's been a number of election administrative ideas that have passed through the House. And that includes things like eliminating the presidential primary, kind of making the photo ID requirement in Missouri effective again after a court decision made it less effective. And the thing that I'm actually most interested in, creating a no-excuse absentee ballot period for in-person voting. So I want to talk about the last one of those things first. The thing that I have discovered after reporting on the whole absentee ballot issue Over the last year, is that Missouri election officials have unequivocally said that Missouri's excuse based system is basically worthless. There's no way for them to figure out if the excuse that they're putting down is actually true. So if you put down that you're going to be out of town, there's no way to actually prove that. And they would just like to go to a no excuse model because they see the current system as a farce. So, what's kind of the Senate's view on? At least making a in-person period where you can just vote for any reason, rather than having to say you're going to be out of town or you're going to be working election day at the polls or something like that.
1: Well, I, I agree. I, I think that the process that we have in place, and 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 again, a no excuse uh, absentee ballot uh, process that is obviously has the protections and measures that we think are necessary to provide for the integrity we want. I think is fine. Giving people an opportunity to have some some flexibility there. Uh, is 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 I think it's perfectly well as long as it contains the right uh, measures and constraints to make sure that that all the boxes are checked uh, that we know uh, that the individuals that are voting uh, are are who they say they are uh, and so whether or not uh, you know they're going to be there on election day now I'm a big advocate I do believe that we have election day for a purpose I don't think that we should have an open-ended absentee ballot process because as things change uh, you know a lot of these uh, campaigns that they run that uh, you know obviously. Uh, You get down to the critical nature and we want people to have as much information to make an informed decision on who they choose and and what, or if they're voting on a ballot measure and all the things that, that, that end up in a campaign process and some places obviously have, you know, voters have voted, you know, and then new information has been produced. And so uh, I just don't want to make sure that, that, that runway is too far, but I do think allowing voters an opportunity to have a chance uh, to vote uh, with absentee. Uh, is, is is fine as long as it's not too long and, and it has the integrity measures that we believe are necessary.
0: So when you say integrity measures, I think what you're referring to is that if you go to, let's just say, an election authority's in-person absentee ballot location, so that may be like a board of elections location, our, our, our clerk. It would be loc- your county, yeah. Uh,
1: county clerk. Yes. Yeah,
0: something like that you would have to show a government issued photo ID in order to do that. Now, there are gonna be some people who who don't like that. Uh, There are also gonna be people who are gonna be like, showing a photo ID is a lot more convenient than getting your ballot notarized, which is what a lot of people had to do last year if they didn't fall into the COVID excuse or or anything like that. Uh, Why do you think that that would be a necessary thing to include in any no excuse in-person absentee period?
1: Well, Jason, I think first and foremost, again, I think, uh, you know, people want to have faith and confidence in the election process. And I think that is a measure that's critical for us to be able to provide that is to make sure that whoever that is, that's coming before that election official or that county clerk is voting and they, they live where they say they live and they are who they say they are. Uh, and again, you cannot go uh, and get on an airplane. You cannot do certain things. You can't rent a car. I mean, you have to have a basic form of ID in order for you to, be able to accomplish most anything in our society today. And just making sure that that individual uh, is the person who says says they are is, is critical as to believing that the election process is, is fair. Uh, and so if you leave that open-ended without that protection there, I, I'm not sure people have the faith and confidence in elections of people just going and voting uh, whenever they want. And I, that's why I think it's critical. So uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that, you know, we will find a way to make sure that we have that type of integrity in our election process so that we don't people have people questioning the outcomes.
2: I don't want to uh, get off Jason's favorite topic of uh, voting and redistricting and all that fun stuff, but I do want to switch gears a little bit because I do have a question regarding illegal gaming machines. I asked this question because initially going into session and I think um, last session, which obviously got derailed by the coronavirus, but the topic of expanding sports gaming was something that seemed to be a priority or at least an issue that um, several people were wanting to discuss. However, you've recently said that if we have the topic of expanding sports gambling in the state of Missouri, we need to first discuss illegal gaming machines. What's the status of that? Is there an appetite to do it? And we're winding down. Um, I know that it's only the beginning of April, but you know, as we're coming into these final weeks of session, there's still several big issues to get done. Um, is this likely to be a discussion this session or do you see it moving um, possibly for 2022?
1: Well, the 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 illegal gaming issue that I believe has been plaguing this state for some uh, for the last few years now has continued to to grow uh, in number. Uh, again, I think that uh, you know my my uh, desire to see uh, uh, you know the legislation that I propose to try to put uh, to put that issue uh, you know uh, in check. Uh, I ho- I'm hopeful to get that across the finish line. We've been obviously we believe that we have the the legal uh, opinions and we have. Case law uh, that these games that are out there right now that are not regulated by any government entity uh, have been deemed illegal. Uh, there was a case in Platt, Platt County that was adjudicated uh, and, and a guilty verdict rendered. There was also another case, I believe, uh, in Lynn County, or um, where another person pled guilty um, for you know these types of gambling machines uh, that are out there. And so I am passionate about trying to get that across the finish line, but I realize. That, that is connected to a desire to expand and offer some sort of a, a legalized option when it comes to whether it's VLTs, VGTs, and then you have the, uh, the issue of sports wagering. All of those kind of issues converge together, and we've been working through that. I guarantee you there will be a conversation yet this year on that topic. Uh, I know that it's a priority. The priority for me to end illegal gaming uh, is a priority for me, but there is a priority for other legislators that would like to see some form of expansion but i have said many times that i'm not willing to expand legalized gambling until we get rid of the illegal gaming makes no sense if we can't if we can't take care of illegal gaming we have no business expanding legal gaming at this point in time so uh, but that that conversation's coming uh, i look forward to seeing where it ends up uh, but i'm not sure uh, that uh, we actually know Uh, where the sentiment of the legislature is until we get to that issue.
0: So I'm I'm, we only have a few minutes left. And as much as I'd like to talk for three thousand minutes about redistricting, um, I'm not going to do that because it's not likely that the legislature is going to actually take up congressional redistricting until winter. And that's my question for you. When do you expect the special session to approve a congressional map
1: to happen? You know, Jason, we've we've kind of worked from the timeline of when we believe that we'll have the information necessary for us to begin the process, and so I mean it's likely that we we are looking at December timeframe, uh, somewhere in that December timeframe for us to, you know, again that's that's out there if all things being considered to occur, and there's a lot of things that have to happen in between there, but I mean it's it's likely. Uh, that that would be the time frame in which we would be find ourselves in some form of special session working on the congressional redistricting maps. Uh, if something delays that process, I mean, we could see where we may have to address uh, whether or not we move uh, the filing date at that point in time. But I believe we can get it done. Uh, I believe uh, the way that we've looked at that, we'll have an opportunity to get it accomplished. But we can't if we don't get the data and the information necessary to make those things happen. That's really kind of out of our our control.
0: And we'll be talking more about congressional redistricting later in the year. But the issue really about the filing date is state legislative redistricting, because I did an article a couple months ago about the timeline for state legislative redistricting. And if the commissions for the House and Senate districts deadlock, you could have a situation where the maps are not finalized until end of first quarter 2022. Which would hit directly into the filing uh, period in February and March. Do you have to? Do you expect that the legislature is going to have to move the filing deadline back to April because of state legislative redistricting being likely not finished until next year?
1: I, I think that's that's a strong possibility, Jason. Again, it it, it depends um, on when this information comes, how how they're able to to work and it, and if they can come up. Uh, with a consensus agreement, uh, and I'm not sure, um, uh, I, I probably can't go back in, in history and tell you how many times that, uh, uh, that that was agreed to, and seven out of ten uh, agreed to the maps that were drawn, and whether or not the courts end up drawing these maps, all of that's going to play into this process, but it's likely that it could be very interesting, uh, you know, as people are trying to determine. Uh, what their legislative districts looks like uh, what their potential senate districts may look like going in the future again i i came in in 2000 i was elected in 2010 came right into the redistricting process and 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 got a very quick uh, understanding of what those legislative districts can end up like because i i ended up in a in a house district that was drawn into four pieces uh, and so it is critical <laughs> you know, for folks as they kind of begin to try to make those types of decisions.
0: My last question for you, I have read elsewhere, you are mulling over whether to run in the wild and wacky U.S. Senate contest. You will be termed out of the Senate after 2022. It, it's a, you would be an interesting candidate. I, I think you would have to increase your name recognition because just because you're the pro tem doesn't mean you're widely known. But when you ran for the Senate in 2014, you were able to put a lot of your own money into that race, and I think that you would be able to self-fund and become a pretty viable candidate pretty quickly. Um, what's kind of your thought process on getting into the the U.S. Senate race in 2022, and, and what's going to be kind of some of the key factors behind your decision-making process?
1: Well, first and foremost, obviously, a decision like this, uh, and I've said many people have always said, you know, I asked the question, you know, what What are you going to do next? Uh, I did not uh, begin my political career with a a, a plan and journey in mind uh, that I have a, a stair-stepping ladder that I'm trying to work my way to Washington, D.C. Again, as you stated, I, I didn't anticipate, uh, I wasn't running for the Missouri Senate until my legislative district was drawn into four pieces. And I ended up with, uh, you know, no options before me other than the Missouri Senate and ended up in the Missouri Senate here we are today. And so I don't I didn't uh, I didn't have the anticipation of running uh, for Congress and or United States Senate before me had hadn't had plans to do that. But politics is about timing and opportunity. Uh, I think Governor Parsons, when he uh, was elected lieutenant governor, didn't envision the fact that he would be sitting in the governor's mansion today. uh, But the opportunity was afforded to him. And here he is today. Uh, I will say that, yeah, I'm probably not the most likely household name that you would uh, whenever you talk about United States Senate. Um, of someone, but again, Washington, D.C. and our federal government is a disaster, and I do believe that the people of Missouri deserve better, uh, and they desperately need someone that has a bit more common sense, and I believe I offer that. I believe, uh, Jason, uh, that uh, if, if we make the decision, it will be a prayerful one. Uh, my family and, and I understand the dynamics of making decisions of this magnitude. It's not something that we take lightly, but it is something that we are seriously considering, and I think that we would provide a viable option for voters That would bring something to Washington, see that they desperately need.
0: Well, um, obviously, we'll be looking forward to your final decision on that, because that contest is shaping up to be to excuse the cliche, a barn burner uh, of epic proportion. But, Senator, thank you so much for your time this morning for all of our stories. STLpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. How can people follow you on Twitter, Jacqueline?
2: Driscoll NPR.
0: And how can people follow you on Twitter or any other parts of the World Wide Web, Senator?
1: Unfortunately, Jason, uh, y- you know, I uh, I probably can't tell you that because I am not well versed in the Twitter universe. And so uh, that that would that would be hard for me to explain. So at, I'll, I'll Dave Shots <laughs> at Dave Shots <laughs> 26
0: at Dave Shots 26. I, I you know go. this. I know this yeah. because I'm looking at it at my phone right now. I'm, I'm typing. Frant- yes at Dave Shots 26 and i you can also go to the Missouri Senate's website to learn more about that, the sender. That
1: senator. is dot uh, dave.shots@missouri.senate.gov. Uh, yeah, that is great. So,
0: thank you so much and until next time, so long.